Right, I'm sure most of you have been with us for uh, the series or the start of the series that we are busy going through at the moment. It's called New Way to Live, and uh, we are journeying through what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these are a collection of sayings that, uh, that Matthew has collected together and uh, he's put together in what is called today the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a whole lot of collections of sayings that uh, appear later on in Matthew's Gospel as well, but we're focusing over the next while on Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we discover something really important, that Jesus is introducing people to a new way of living. That's hugely important that we recognize that. He's introducing people to a new way of living, which was something that was quite radical. It was something that people had never, ever been exposed to before. That's why when when you get to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know sometimes we are fairly critical of the Pharisees and and maybe that's, uh, that's uncalled for sometimes. But the Pharisees were, were deeply, deeply religious people. They were people who longed to see a spiritual revival among their people. Uh, they did everything humanly possible to bring people back to God. And in fact, in that particular point in time, they were the most influential group of religious people at that stage. They, they, they had and, and were exercising a massive influence in people's lives. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to describe the kind of lifestyle that not even the Pharisees had envisaged. With all of their focus on the Lord, with all of their desire to see people following God, Jesus begins to talk about a lifestyle that not even the Pharisees had envisaged. A lifestyle of purity that went way beyond anything that they had ever dreamed about. You see, in the portion of Scripture we're going to be looking at in a moment, you'll discover that he's going to talk about adultery and he's going to talk about sexual purity. And I think we would, would all admit and acknowledge today that these are very serious issues, but they're also extremely sensitive issues in our culture. I think they're serious in the sense that they're one of the giants that we are facing on a daily basis. The giant of that ongoing exposure to sexually suggestive material in its different formats. You can stand in checkers and be exposed to that. Don't think this is like, I'm now going to look at something I shouldn't be looking at. It happens all around us all the time. And it often feels as though there's no place to hide from the onslaught that's being made on the value system that honors purity. It's almost like if you honor purity, you want to live a lifestyle of purity, it's like you almost frowned upon today. What makes it worse are the many attempts to downplay the seriousness of people having affairs and living together and committing adultery and sex before marriage, even among Christians. 
It's kind of a, quite a, I noticed quite, quite a ground smell, swell to, to try and downplay the seriousness of that. But I think it, it will also be true to say it's a sensitive issue because it is embarrassing to talk about adultery. I don't know about you. I don't find it particularly uh, uh, a nice subject to, to have to address, especially if it comes to a one-on-one uh, with people. It's secretive. It's deceptive. It's shameful. And let's be quite honest. Most people find it difficult to talk about in the Christian context. I don't know if you found that people find it easy. I certainly haven't. It's something really embarrassing. It's shameful. So let's start by reading what Jesus had to say about adultery and sexual purity on the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart with her. And here's the part that's uh, very interesting. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, I want you to notice here in what Jesus is saying, he, he redefines for people what adultery is. He says that adultery happens when somebody even looks at a woman lustfully. And he says when that happens, in other words, when somebody looks at a woman lustfully, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. Now, now, this isn't some kind of new teaching that Jesus was coming out with. Some people say, well, where did he get that from? May I say to you, he is just consolidating what's taught in the Ten Commandments. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 and 17, it says you shall not commit adultery. I think it's the Seventh Commandment. But then he goes on, uh, it goes on in verse 17 to say you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you not, shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You put those two together and you discover where Jesus is coming from. In other words, what is adultery? It's first and foremost a heart issue. It's not just unacceptable sexual behavior that's being frowned upon. You see, because what we, what we kind of get to the place where we, we kind of get to the place where we say, well, I've never done that. I've, I've never committed adultery. The question is what's been going on in your heart? That's the real issue that Jesus is raising. And I think there might be a whole lot more people who said, whoa, maybe I haven't done it physically, but maybe there's stuff that's going on in my heart that needs to be addressed. And, and, and strangely enough, knowing that it's a heart problem helps us to deal with the issue. Knowing that it's a heart issue, it's first and foremost a heart issue even before it's a behavioral issue. When you know that, you're actually able to deal with it. Let me put it to you like this. If you apply yourself to the wrong issue, 
you're never going to resolve it. And so what Jesus is doing, he's really exposing the fact that adultery is foremost a heart issue that people are struggling with. That's why Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things. That's why Proverbs identifies the, the fact that we need to guard our hearts. And isn't it true to say, as soon as you know the root cause of something, it empowers you and enables you to deal with it? By pointing this out over here, Jesus draws people's attention to the fact that there is a new way of living. A new way that's going to embrace purity rather than sensuality. A new way where we know how to deal with temptation. A new way where we can understand and discern where the enemy is at work in our culture and amongst us. He's not trying to heap guilt on people. He's trying to describe to us what kingdom living is is all about. And kingdom living is radical purity even in essential society. Kingdom living is about keeping our thoughts pure in a sexually charged environment. And it's also knowing that we are no longer slaves to sin. I guess it, it's, it's worth saying this morning he is not saying you can't admire somebody of the opposite sex. He's just saying don't look at them with lust. There's a huge difference to me between admiring somebody and acknowledging somebody and saying I'm looking at them in a particular way. Now, there is a solution uh, when it comes to this whole issue of adultery and, 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 and living in a sexually a permissive culture, and there is a Christian response to this. And the Christian response that Jesus gives us here is one that not even one of us is willing to consider. Who is willing to pluck out their eye this morning if you're struggling? Just slip up your hand so I can minister to you afterwards. I don't see any one-handed people in the congregation this morning. Nobody's decided to cut off their hand. So in other words, we, we read what Jesus is saying here, but we understand that he, he does mean something important in that. Let me read it to you again. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So what does Jesus mean? And I think he means three things. They're not going to be on the screen, so, but I will highlight them for you this morning. The first thing that he means is you've got to take this issue very seriously. That's what I think he's getting at. Um, and you see, when we're constantly being exposed to sexually tempting stuff all the time, if we are not careful, it becomes less and less noticeable. You see, that's what starts to happen after a while. I remember when I was uh, studying at seminary, we had uh, a lecturer who'd come from overseas and then went back home overseas and then came back to, to lecture again. In the years that he was away, he said, when I came back to South Africa, I noticed there'd been a very definite shift in the moral climate of the country. And he said, before where I was comfortable to take my family, I now felt I couldn't take my family to some of those places because there'd been a shift. But you see, because the shift is taking place slowly, slowly we just keep adapting. And there's a huge danger in that. You see, even somebody 
like David. David, and I want to highlight David for a reason. David was called of the Lord. David heard God speaking to him. David was anointed by the Holy Spirit. David was spoken about as being a man who had a heart after the heart of God, but he still committed adultery. There's a point over here. If it can happen to David, don't ever say it's not going to happen to me. Interesting thing that I realized just reading that, I haven't got the scripture, but it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You remember that uh, uh, the Bible tells us that David was uh, walking around on the roof of, of his palace, and he saw a woman bathing, and uh, she was very beautiful, and David sends somebody, out, uh, somebody to find out about her. And listen to the servant's reply when he comes back to David. It's very interesting. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He comes and he says, this woman that you saw is married. Did you know that not even that stopped David? His servant obviously came very carefully, very timidly. But he's saying, like David, she's a married woman. Interestingly enough, it didn't put the brakes on what he was planning. So we need to take this seriously, I think, because we don't always appreciate the sinfulness of our own hearts sometimes. Sometimes it's very powerful. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. For no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, including David, the man of God. I think that's the one thing that Jesus is getting it. If he says cut your hand off and pluck your eye out, I think he's saying take it seriously. The second thing I think he's getting at um, is that we cannot afford to underestimate the influence our own culture is having on us. We can't afford to underestimate that. I don't know if you would agree with me this morning, but I think that in South Africa we're living in an extremely sensual society. And we can't just afford to ignore it. We can't pretend it doesn't exist because it does exist. We will be faced with sexually provocative material, whether you like it or not. We will have to deal with what's becoming more and more acceptable by the majority of society today. You're, you're made to be kind of a strange human being if you advocate purity. It's kind of people, it's now becoming the joke. I don't know if some of you watched that, that, uh, that one cheerleader who resigned because she was being mocked for being a virgin just recently. I think we need to be able to handle the way that sometimes we're being targeted as believers for what we believe and for what we stand for. I think it would, not, it would be appropriate to say this morning that Christians are being targeted. As a pastor, I feel heartbroken I feel sore and I feel incredibly sad about what happened to Bill Hubbles. 
because there was a man just like me who was ministering in a church just like me. And I want to just appeal to you as a congregation and throw your hands up in horror when somebody falls. Weep and be broken hearted. Don't condemn them because they are people just like you. And it's a tragedy to me. I'm broken hearted for them because they've done, so many of them, so much for the kingdom. And isn't it sad to see so much of that's been so deeply and powerfully affected when something like that happens. But I think the third thing Jesus means when he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your right hand is that there are some radical things we are required to do and to be very intentional about in the culture that we are living in. And like Joseph, one of them is that we need to flee from sexual and Joseph discovered something. Sometimes when you run away, it gets costly. Don't always think that you're going to get the, the applause of the crowds for that. Sometimes it's going to get costly. Paul says to the Corinthian church, flee from sexual immorality. Verse 19, do you know why? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. May I say to you this morning, if you are a believer, your body, my body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where God dwells in us. He's not just trying to be funny. He's saying, you belong to me. I live in you. All of me is in you. You can't, you can't just do this kind of stuff because of who you are. To Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Notice over here, Paul's advice is not to ignore the desires, but to replace them. I don't think it works to say to people, don't, don't, don't. I think it works way better than to say, replace, put something else in its place. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, uh, Whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about those kinds of things. I must admit to you this morning, there's something along the journey that I have learned in an observation I make. It's only people who really desire purity that will do things like that. If people are struggling with a problem and don't really want it, they don't go down this road because sometimes they're wanting a solution without following the suggestion that is made in Scripture. But I want to land this message this morning by looking at the different ways that we can avoid adultery and that we can pursue purity in our society and in our culture today. Now, to me, just explaining what Jesus meant doesn't help you at all. Just gives you a better understanding. I think we've got to land this by saying, how do we do it? Is there a solution? How does God help us in this particular journey? The first thing is that there has to be a shift in our thinking. There must be a change in the way that we think. And the reason I say that 
is because, like me, you've heard all the war stories of all the people who have fallen, and you begin to wonder, is what Jesus says even possible? And I need to say in response to that, the enemy will target what you believe. He will target what I believe. You see, if he can mess around with my thinking and what I truly believe about what Jesus has said, I will start to behave in accordance with what I believe. Jesus was not saying this is an impossibility. He was talking about kingdom living. The other thing you need to be alert to, as I need to be alert as well, is that the enemy will try and get us to embrace a distorted version of what God says. Do you know that sometimes people have got some weird ideas of what God said and he never said it at all? I, if I may use some liberty and license this morning. Sex was God's idea. The rest wasn't. And sometimes we make it out as though God is wanting to take all of the joy and the fun out of life when he never said that ever. Remember when Eve was tempted in the garden and she responded to the serpent in Genesis 3. She says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And then she adds, you must not touch it or you'll die. God never said you mustn't touch it. You see, she's starting to have a picture and a perspective of God that was untrue. Because all God was trying to do was to protect people from destroying their lives. It's still what He does. He knows that when you and I step over certain lines, it becomes destructive for us. Remember the weapons we fight with, not the They take thought captive. We bring them into obedience in Christ. That's the first one. Change in perspective. Secondly, be honest with yourself and with God. What I mean by that is this. When there's a problem of lust and adultery, it's called S-I-N. Not I had a battle. Not I'm going through a tough time. It's called sin. You see, if you don't call it what it is, you can't deal with it for what it is. That's a hugely important thing. And, and I'm not asking you to stand on the stage and tell everybody you're struggling with lust or something, but at least before the Lord and at least be honest with yourself and say, God, there is a time and a season I'm going through, I'm struggling with this stuff. May I say to you, it's the best thing. Honesty is the best policy. That's why when John wrote, to the believers. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth. It's not in us. You're lying to yourself. If we confess. Isn't that beautiful? You see, so God knew the journey that we were on. He understands our frailty. He understands our culture and the world that we live in. And so he says, and if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify. Isn't that beautiful? Instead of hiding, put it on the table. Let God sort it out. Thirdly, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. If your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. Steer clear of what is tempting. 
expose yourself to what will enable you to stay pure. That's your responsibility. And so, well, you know, God didn't protect me. That's why Paul reminds the believers in Philippians 4, think about such things because it strengthens you. It builds you up. Fourthly, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Friends, you all know this, but let me remind you of it. When we pray, something happens. When we pray, something happens. There is a power when we pray that is way more powerful than anything the enemy is trying to do and anything that's going on in your heart. You see, Jesus prayed like this. If you want to know how to pray, it's not my will, but your will be done. And did you notice something about his prayer? There came a place where the flesh was conquered. There came a place where Jesus prayed. It says he prayed first, and then he prayed a second time, and then he prayed a third time. And by the third time he prayed, his flesh gave in. You see, I want to tell you this. When you pray like this and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, you will find there is a place when the flesh in you says, I give up. And I surrender to the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Watch and pray that you'll not fall into temptation. Fifthly, to me, this is something we don't do very well in the Western church. It is confess the truth of who you are in Christ. Friends, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. If any person is in Christ, they are a... Let's say that together. They are a... Wow. I mean, isn't that what's true? Isn't it often the enemy who's trying to make us feel like we're failures, we're not going to make it, we were just used Friends, let's stand up and say it again. If any man is in Christ, they are a... Is that not true? Is that not the truth? The trouble is, we very seldom say it. I might say it on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. When last did you pray that out loud? When last, when you were facing temptation, did you stand and say, I am a new creation in Christ? I will tell you something. There will be a shift if you will do that. And it's not name it and claim it. It's declaring the truth of what God has said in the Word. What about Galatians 2? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we serve an awesome God. We are a new creation. Let's declare it for a change. Sixthly, a reliance and a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Do you know that God designed the Christian life to be lived in the power of the Spirit? <laughs> Do you know there isn't another way? Do you know that it's impossible to live the way Christ was describing life, this new way of living, outside of the power of the Spirit? You can't do it. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, 
when Paul is speaking about that inner battle that we all know that we all face, he says, live by the Spirit and you won't gratify. He doesn't say try and fight it off. He doesn't say read a novel. He says, live by the Spirit. And then later on in Ephesians 5, he spells it out a little bit better. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, wine affects your behavior in the same way the Spirit will affect your behavior. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And most of you know that that means be filled with the Spirit and 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 be filled with the Spirit. I have grown to believe in the power of the Spirit. Every morning that I get up, one of the first things I ask Him, Lord, will you fill me today? Because I know it's His plan. Number seven. Keep in mind, I want to say this carefully this morning, that intentional sin has eternal consequences. Intentional sin has eternal consequences. Let me explain that to you. When, when, when Jesus over here is, is speaking about this whole issue of adultery. Listen to what he says. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What he's saying is this. Let the knowledge of the implications of sin in eternity affect your decisions today. I, I say that for a very important reason. I think Jesus is trying to give us a little bit of a perspective on life in the hereafter. And what we do now affects then. My little JB comment is here. I think that there's sometimes people who do what they're going to do and they just say, well, I'll repent later on. Let me tell you, you can't play games like that with God. It doesn't work. You, you can say, well, I'll genuinely, friends, if you did it with the knowledge you thought you could manipulate God, you've blown it. Because God will never be manipulated. God is hugely gracious and hugely kind, but he won't be used. Friends, he's saying this before the fact. What is he saying before the fact? Take serious cognizance of what you do before you even do it. And hopefully that will be a deterrent. And then last thing. Get plugged into Christian community. Do you know there's something supernatural that happens when you become a believer? And the supernatural thing is this. You are plugged into the body of Christ. Look at that verse. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, this family. I know we might not like 
the way everybody looks because they're different to us. But I want to say to you, you can't choose your family. It comes with a deal. I'm serious. You can choose your friends. You can't choose your family. When you got born again and when you got saved and when I got saved, I became, through the Spirit, part of this family here. And I am your brother and you are my brother and you are my sister. And God meant us to be together not because he wanted to create a crowd. This is not rent a crowd. This is we need each other. We need each other. And if I may make an appeal from the stage, I need you. I'm very conscious when I preach a message like this, who's going to get targeted. And if I may say, please pray for me in the next week that lies ahead. I realize this is a spiritual battle. I'm in it. Now when you, and this has happened to many of you, you stand up and you give a testimony. What's the very area you get nailed in the next week? The very area you gave your testimony. You see, when we're bold enough to declare it, he says, I'm going to cut your legs out underneath you. But you see, I don't believe he can do that when we are praying body and we're praying for one another and we're journeying together and we're supporting one another in Christ. That's what it's all about. Being part of the family. Friends, we have, we have um, coffee together after the service, not so that you can go home warm. I mean, hopefully you do. I think we have coffee after the service because you know, it's not easy to really connect sitting like this. You're all facing forward. You're all sitting shoulder to shoulder. But when you have coffee, it's meant to be just a kind of place of networking and hanging out, and ministering and encouraging one another. And, and, I, and I, I say that because I want to make an appeal to you. Church is not about coming to a service. Church is about being part of a body. That makes sense? See, he called us to a new way of living. In the Spirit, in the Lord. That is beautiful. Amen? Amen. Right. Am I allowed to have some communion quickly with you? I, I, I mean, don't smile. I, I don't want to rush through communion, but we are going to have communion together. And here's the thing that I want to mention to you. Communion reminds you of this. You're a new creation. 